You have questions? We have answers. We're two Southern moms on the backside of raising kids. And we have some things to say. We've lived life, made mistakes, and learned some lessons. Join us for answers to the questions you just want to ask your mom. Welcome to another Just Ask Your Mom podcast. I'm Bonnie Blaylock. And I'm Renee Sproles. Well, today we've got a special guest that we're super excited to introduce you all to. This is a youth minister, David Skidmore. So glad to be here. Do you, do you ever have a guest that you're not super excited to introduce people to? I don't think we have had one. We're I always, don't think we have. We can say that to all the guests. We, that's right. We get to pick them. <laughs> that's right. That's why we're never... Yeah. We're, that way we're never disappointed. Exactly. I'm, I'm honored to be here with, with the one, two, three four of my favorite students. <laughs> very good, go. very good. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, David. How long have you been a youth minister? Uh, I've been in youth ministry for 25 years. Okay. Uh, the past 20 here in Murfreesboro at, okay. at the current church, North Boulevard. And I uh, got married in December of 95. My wife, Melissa, and I have been married almost 27 years in December. And we have three daughters, mm-hmm. Daisy Sue and she just got married in uh, May. And then Annabelle is a student, a college student at Lipscomb University. And then Lila May is a junior at uh, Central Magnet here in Murfreesboro. So great. That's how we know him. We all go to the same church. Mm-hmm. And our kids have been in his program. And like we said when we interviewed Amy Sane, our children's minister, you know, it's good to talk to other moms and dads, and we do that mm-hmm. on this program. But then there are people who have interacted with multitudes Hundreds, of families maybe thousands mm-hmm. of families and it's just helpful to get their perspective they have such more experience than yeah. we do the the breadth and width and depth of the people that you've interacted with and the numbers of teens and their situations are just so different than our own yeah so yeah that's why we're happy it's to have really you helpful and mm-hmm. you can just distill the wisdom for us in the next 45 minutes or less <laughs> okay right <laughs> Cliff notes. Cliff notes. Yeah. So we. So wait. Let's talk about why we invited him here. Yeah. So when we did the uh, episode with Amy Sane, um, we were talking. She's a children's minister, so she covers ages birth to sixth grade. And we asked her, "Okay, Amy, same question. What are the top five, six things that you would want parents to know if you just sort of had them, you know, for five minutes? And you have. You said, here's the things that are going to set you on your journey and give you all the things you need to know. You know, in a nutshell, what would that be? Yeah, things that would set you up for success, um, things that would just help you be a more effective parent of a teen mm-hmm. is what we're looking for today. Yeah. So what you got for us, David? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things in 25 years of ministry, when I started, of course, uh, I was 24, 25 years old. I was not a parent. Uh, I was just newly married. I knew that I had no credibility to speak to parenting um, I tell younger youth ministers, don't pretend to know how to parent. You can know a lot about teens and you can do a lot with teenagers. And I worked with a lot of teens, whereas most parents only had their own teens. So I knew a lot about teens and teen culture, but I never pretended to be a parent. What's really changed in the past 25 years is now I've raised three daughters and our girls have now are almost all out of the teen years. We have one left that's still a teenager. And I find myself the same age or older than almost every parent in our ministry. Hmm. So now the parents are asking me questions like, you know, what should we do? Do we do the right thing? And I find myself thinking, why are they asking me this? And then I realize, <laughs> oh, I'm older than them and, and, and have walked a little bit ahead of most of them uh, on this journey. And so um, I, I sit with parents now 
as much, if not more than I, than I do with teenagers. I have more parents coming to my office and say, can we come in and talk? And uh, that's a a shift that has happened just, you know, in the past couple of years. Hmm. Here's what I tell almost every parent. First of all, imagine that you go to the circus and you love to see the trapeze artist at the circus, right? It's one of the acts that everybody loves to see. And when the trapeze artist lets go of one trapeze and is going to flip and flop and grab hold of the other one, um, you all, what does the audience do? Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. The, the, well, the audience <laughs> just makes that, that, that sound, right? That gasp. And, and I tell parents, I said, uh, parenting a teenager is 13 to 19 is six years of making that sound as a parent. It's, Amen to it, that. It is six years of, of, of inhaling. And if you try doing that for six years, it's, it's, it's really difficult. It's a little exhausting. It gives you gray hair. Yeah. So, um, and so here is what I follow that up with. How many times have you been to the circus and the trapeze artist flips and flops and grabs a hold of the other bar and swings over and lands on the platform or keeps doing other tricks? How often? Every time. Almost, almost every single time. If they haven't, then then they, they fall. Uh, and when they fall, almost every single time, what happens then? There's a net. They, they land in that net. They, they land in a net, which is almost as exciting as watching, you know, as a kid, I wanted to jump and land on that big, yeah, you know, big net. Same. Now, the problem is there's only, there's, there's only one situation where there is a, a real problem, and that's where? No net. If there's no net. And so the job of, of parenting and the job of youth ministry uh, are two sides of the same coin. If your child is, is on the trapeze and they flip and flop, I tell parents, you're going to be inhaling for six straight years and you're going to feel like you're hyperventilating. They're, they're going to catch it, uh, the other side of that trapeze. Most often, they will grab the trapeze. But, but sometimes they don't and they fall. And if they fall, there's got to be a net. So the job of parenting is to make sure your child has a network, a village, a community, um, disciplers, you know, that there is a, a, that there is a net. And the job of youth ministry is to provide that net and to work with parents to say, it's going to be okay. Your teen may not grab onto this every single time and they may fall, but if they fall, we are here, here is what we've done to provide a net. Great. And so that's the number one thing that I, I want parents to know. And when every parent sits in my office, I'm just going to use that analogy with them to let them know that's what we're here for. Now, our job is the net. We're, we are not the one that is training them how to do the trapeze. That's the job of the parent. Uh, the parent is the one that is training. The parent is the one that is doing the discipline. But we are going to partner with them and we're going to try to, to be the net. So that's the first thing I would, I would lead off with that I, I want parents to know. I love that. What a great analogy yeah, that is. really memorable. Very apt. Life so, is a circus with that's children. Right. That's yes. right. And um, these are your monkeys. And these and are your monkeys. monkeys. That's right. Monkeys, clowns. There's lots of other circus words that apply to, to those years. Um, so then here are some other things that, uh, that I tell parents. And I just made a list of a couple of them, and then we're going to get into some, you know, go, go more, a little deeper um, later on. A parent comes in with a problem, and they say, my child is going through this. What do I do? I first of all want to get them to breathe. After we talk trapezes, um, I just let them know what your child is going through. This is more common than you think. Mm-hmm. You, your child is not the only one that's ever dealt with this. And parents will go, did you just hear what I said my kid is going through? Because you either you don't care or you didn't hear me. And I go, no, I care very much. And I heard you. You just need to know that I've talked with hundreds of families and I hear this a whole lot. There is there is nothing surprising about this fiery ordeal that your child is going through, yes. to quote scripture. That is so comforting and so surprising, I think, to an individual parent to hear because 
sometimes you think, and I've been there where you just think this is, this is terrible. This is bad. No one else. You feel that way. you feel alone. No one else could possibly have it this bad. Yeah. I mean, it's one of Satan's best lies to us and it it makes us want to hide and not seek help. Exactly. And And I think it's why teen parents often do not talk to one another Mm. because it's a sense of shame. Mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. Yeah. And we yeah. talk with our students a lot about these two words, difficulty and deception. I say the difficulty is something that you're going through or your child is going through in this case, where you feel like th- this is a, this is a huge problem. You know, Jesus said in, in John 16, 33, in, in this world, you're, you're going to have trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I tell students, we are, are not in charge of the tr- trouble. We, we have no control of the trouble. Now we, some of the trouble we bring on ourselves, but a lot of the trouble Mm -hmm. of the world, we have no control of the fact that there will be trouble. We have no control over the overcoming that's already been done. So what part of that verse do we have any say in the, the taking heart? So let's try to figure out what is, what does take heart mean to a teenager, to a parent, um, to a, a youth worker or a friend? What does, what does taking heart mean? We'll kind of get into that just a little bit, but I tell parents, you're not the only one. And the, the, the difficulty that you're going through seems like the problem. That's not the problem. The deception is the problem. And I think, Renee, you said what Satan says to us about the difficulty is the problem. A teen's going through something and says, I'm really going through this tough thing. I can't, uh, you know, what do I do? The enemy says, well, you can't tell anybody because they'll, they won't understand. Nobody else has ever gone through this. Nobody else has gone through this the way you have. If they know that, they won't like you. Um, nobody is going to trust you if you tell them that you're, you've fallen short in this. Uh, you can't disappoint your parents. They'll be mad. Your youth, your youth leaders can't know. They'll never give you leadership. All of these deceptions are the much bigger problem. So I tell parents, don't just worry about the difficulty your kid is going through. You really need to focus on the, the deception. Let, let's identify the lies that Satan is going to use to tell them, you know, that they're that they're not good enough and that they, they can never overcome this and that they can't take heart. There's no way to take heart. Renee talks about that a lot. The story you tell yourself. It's so true. The yeah. narrative that runs that tape that plays yeah. in your head all the time, which right. we all have. But I think they have teenagers have it a lot. And I'm thinking like poker face, poker face, like when my kids came clean with something like I never wanted to act like super shocked or super disappointed I wanted to like create a culture of yay that's out in the open Mm. now we can deal with it because it's in the light and it's not hiding anymore and it's hard as a parent because if you achieve a culture of openness and like celebrating confession in your home they're going to tell you some stuff (laughs) yeah I knew that I probably wouldn't make it through this entire podcast without mentioning Fred Rogers. Uh, I wondered how long it would take, but right out of the bat. <laughs> Wait, 10 minutes? Uh, <laughs> one of my fra- favorite Fred Rogers quotes is, whatever is mentionable is manageable. Yep. And a lot of people have heard that, especially if they've studied Fred Rogers, but a lot of people haven't heard that. And it, it is one of the truest things that I've seen in ministry. You know, when I was a kid, I appreciated Mr. Rogers at a different level. And as a teenager, I, I really wanted nothing to Not do with at him. All. <laughs> but as I've gotten older, I just realized uh, whatever is mentionable is manageable. And if a kid can talk about it, then we can deal with it. And I tell a student all the time, there is no truth. There is no truth that is going to make me stop loving you. Whatever you tell me that is the truth, there is no truth that's going to make me stop loving you. Right. But if you lie to me once... As my grandfather used to say, if you lie to me once, a thousand truths will be doubted. Let's be honest. You know, let's, let's, let's get these things out. And so when a parent says my kid is dealing with this and we want to talk about it, I tell them this is more common than you think. I then ask him this question. Have, have your teens ever heard your story? 
Have your teens ever really heard about a time that you went through this because they think because of the deception of Satan, your parents have never been through this. Mm -hmm. Now it's foolish as a parent for us to imagine that a teen would fall for that lie. Your, you know, your parents never struggled with sexual temptation. Your parents never struggled with self-image. And so, and, our, and teens believe that. So I, I tell parents, have your teens heard your story on this? I also tell parents quite a bit, you, your teen wants boundaries. They, they yep. want guardrails. Yes. Every kid. Yes. And, and um, most parents want to be their, their teen's friend and not their parent. And that, that never goes well. Uh, you can be a, 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 a parent who is a friend. Mm -hmm. But if your main role is friend over parent, then it's never going to go well at all. And I tell them you're, they want boundaries. They want to know. I cannot count the number of times that a student has come in and, and said to me, you know, I've never been grounded. I've never had this taken away from me. Why is that? You would expect the opposite. But they see their friends being held to, to guardrails. And they understand those guardrails are there to, to, to protect them. Right. Renee, I think you had a story about the clothing. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. was that? So in youth group. Um, I guess it was junior high and uh, we had just moved back to Murfreesboro right. Emma had a great little small group of girls and the, uh, Emma and a girlfriend, I guess we, we took them shopping. They couldn't have driven themselves and Emma pulled something off the rack and um, her friend did too. And Emma looked at the outfit and she goes, Oh, my dad would never let me wear that outfit. And the girl turned to Emma and said, I wish my dad would tell me not to wear this outfit. He would, he let her wear whatever she wanted and it didn't feel like love to her at all. Mm -hmm. It felt like he didn't care. Yep. And that has always stuck with me and it stuck with Emma because yeah. she thought, wait, somebody's got a dad who, yeah, who wouldn't, wouldn't, who wouldn't care like how she presented herself to the world. And for the record, if that dad told that girl, I don't want you to wear that nine out of 10 times, she's probably going to come back. She's not going to say, oh, thank you, oh, loving thank father. You for loving me. She's going to say, why? You never let me do anything. You never let, but don't let that deter you. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, friendship is the, is the, the product at the end of the road of raising kids. Yeah. When, you, when you do have appropriate boundaries, it's the unexpected. Oh, well, yeah. look at there. <laughs> look what happened. You know, yep. I mean, it was, it was sort of unexpected for me because I did feel like that was not my role. Mm -hmm. My role was I was a parent. I had authority from God. Responsibility. That carried with it huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was just a happy. Yeah, you get there. Beautiful outcome. You know, and, the, and the last of this of this short list of things that I, I tell almost every parent, I feel, is um, your teen knows more about blank, fill in the blank, than you think or know. Um, and the number of times that I've had a conversation where, oh, well, we can't talk about that because my teen doesn't yet know about that. It may be people the actually case. say that. Are uh, you kidding me? Oh yeah, yeah. And and the number of times that there's things that that they don't want to talk about, and I say you need to know that your teen is getting answers to these questions. They're getting them from somewhere, from someone. They're getting them online. They're getting them from a movie, from a 30-minute sitcom, uh, from from the lyrics to a song, from you know a, a billboard, a, a tweet. You know they are getting them. Probably five years ago. And that, yeah, <laughs> and if, and if you if you want Instagram to to raise your kids, I can tell you how that's going to go. Um, and, and it's going to begin to erode that net that we talked about. You know, the, the net's then going to be gone. Um, you don't want social media to be your net. So those are, those are five of the quick things that I want every parent to know. I, I read a, a book years ago by the mom of Dylan Klebold. That name will be familiar to some listeners. Dylan Klebold was one of the Columbine um, uh, shooters. And I, I one thing that she said, it was a heart-wrenching book because this is a mom who was, um, you know, 
was struggling to make sense of what happened. And somebody asked her because they felt such guilt and were vilified by the, by the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, they said, what's the one thing you would do differently? And I, her answer has always stuck with me. She said, there's one phrase that I would have used a whole lot more that I think would have prevented, could have prevented what happened. She said, I wish I'd used the phrase, tell me more about fill in the blank. She said, if every day, if I just said, tell me more about that. Mm. And she just said, if, if those of us who work with younger students, again, in my role, I'm working with my own children, but also with a lot of other teenagers, the listeners of this podcast are primarily focusing on their children and maybe the friends of their children that they have influence over. Just that phrase, tell me, tell me more about that. Um, we tend to ask our kids yes or no questions, and especially in youth ministry, I tell our parents after a trip, give it 48 hours because some of them will answer in words and maybe only grunts. And you know, after a, how was the trip? Uh, how was the retreat? Uh, did you have fun? Uh. And you might get a word or two, but after 48 hours, um, most teens will begin to open up. And so uh, those were just some some helpful things uh, for me. I, I just spoke with a counselor a lady named Beth Robinson, who worked at Lubbock Christian for a long time. Uh, listeners can look her up, and she's written some really fabulous things on counseling students. And I just spoke with her in January at a conference, and she said that the the rise during the, the past two years um, through COVID, the rise of anxiety and depression among adolescents is up 400%. And she said in, in her area, if you want to get a, a, a um, an appointment with a counselor now in January, this is when I was talking to her, she said, if you want to get an appointment with a, a, an adolescent counselor, you'd have to wait until June, that every place that they have is, is, is completely booked until June because of what students are going through. Again, whatever's mentionable is manageable, mm-hmm. but teens have got to find a place and save people, you know, to whom to, to talk about some of these things. So uh, that's, the, that's the first list of the four things that, that almost every parent that sits in my office, I'm going to walk them through that because it's kind of a checkup. It's the thing that I, I just, parents need to hear, um, need to hear the most. Yeah. Those are so good. I love that. I love that first one, especially with the trapeze. Um, it's what we say a lot, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. And you're not the only one. That was our very first podcast. Yeah. (laughs) You're not the only one. You know, when when teens come to me and say, you know, Skid, I'm I'm going through something, but you can't tell anybody. And I I tell them, no, wait a minute. I can't make that promise. You know, whatever you tell me, I very well may have to share with somebody else. But you need to know that you're not going to go through this alone. And there's nothing you're going to say that's going to cause me to think anything less of you. I honestly cannot think of a single time that a teen has ever said, well, then I'm just not going to tell you. They've always told me. And when they tell me, my, my, my strategy then is, okay, um, how, how did your parents react when you shared this with them? Knowing that most of the time they're going to say, well, that's the reason I told you you couldn't tell anybody because they don't know. And I say, well, let's find a way to get them involved in this conversation. They need to be a part of this conversation. And my strategy is always, let me offer you this. Um, you can tell them, I can tell them, or we can tell them. Now, like, what do you mean? Well, if you want to go and tell them, I'll give you the dignity of sitting down with them and telling them without somebody listening in. But then after you tell them, I just like for them to call me and we'll talk through what you told them just to make sure that you've walked through everything you've told me. But you can do it on your own terms. And then that gives me the freedom to kind of follow up with helping a parent understand and helping to coach them. You know, you're not the only one Mm -hmm. because a parent may be wise, probably wiser than me, but they haven't had the broad spectrum of working with hundreds of students to realize 
lots of people go through this. So uh, they can tell them or, or I can tell them. I can sit down as I have done with parents and said, let me tell you, I met with your child and let me just kind of coach you through how to respond to this so that, like you said, Renee, you, you're not overreacting, you're not underreacting and you know that, that this is a common struggle. So let's help you get through the, there's this difficulty, but let's attack the deception that's going on with the difficulty. And, or, or we can tell them, and I've done all three ways where a teen is told, or, or I've gone up to parents, or we've sat down together and I've said, let me help you to hear what they're trying to say. Um, and that feels like that's the most common thing that I do as a youth minister. Sure, I'm teaching and I'm planning events and, and we're, we're doing all kinds of logistics for trips, but I feel like the most common thing that I do is to help a teen know how they can share this information with their parents, how parents can hear it from their teen, how parents can get wisdom from other parents who say, hey, if you know somebody going through this, send them to us and we'll walk them through it. And I feel like that in 25 years of ministry, that is that has become probably the thing that I have to do the most. Okay, so that makes me think of a question. How can you be the parent that your teen is not afraid to come to? That's exactly what I was thinking. How can you be the parent that they just come to you? That they just come and say, I mean, maybe they'll need you anyway, not to not to take your job out of the, <laughs> out of the picture, but no, no, no. maybe eventually they'll need you anyway to kind of work through it all. But yeah, I want to be the parent that my teen's not afraid. They're not afraid I'm going to hate them. They're not afraid, you know, I'm going to disown them or kick them out of the house or any of those things. How can I be that parent? Or what makes me not that parent? Yeah, and I would hope that they would go to the parent first, and then the parent may then call and say, hey, our teen just shared this. Could you meet with us and kind of help us help us through this? Yeah. Not all families need that, but that's certainly the healthiest way for it to, for it to go. Um, and there's so many answers to that uh, question, which is a great question. But like we've already said, um, if you're the parent who has been open about sharing with your teen, not, not disclosing, our teens don't need to know everything we did and Mm -hmm. they don't need to know every struggle we had. And they don't need to just hear, you know, Oh, I did all this. And you know, I turned out okay. I'm still here and and you're still alive. So it's okay. They can easily get that message, but I don't think we need to keep secrets. If a teen asks us a question, we need to be ready to answer. Mm-hmm. And and when they're old enough to, to, to respond to the answer. But I think for them to know, um, hey, we just continually communicate to them. I know with our with our uh, daughters, Melissa and I, throughout, from the time they were five and six years old, when they weren't dealing with these kinds of things, we just kept telling them, you can tell us anything. There is nothing that you are going to tell us that's going to make us you just say you. those words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, you know, again, it sounds like a very Mr. Rogers, you know, there's nobody else in the world quite like you. And I like you just the way you are. Um, we just kept saying, Hey, you know, because as, but if as Fred, you don't say that, how are they going to know that? You just think they know that because you know that. That's right. Because while well, I'm feeding them and I'm clothing them, they have to know that I love them. Exactly. And and it's really important that a parent just lets that, you know, especially in times when there's not an emergency. Mm-hmm. And then they begin to tell you things. And then and some kids are much more closed than, than others. But I, I think that the greatest gift is to just share your life with them tell them about what you're afraid of, tell them what you're going through, tell them, uh, you know, what happened at school, tell them what you thought about what happened at school. And again, a lot of this goes back to tell me more about that. Kids, mm-hmm. if they feel like you genuinely care, you know, t- tell me more about that. And then they just begin to, to share more. That's the that's one way you become that kind of parent. And then when they do tell you something, because teens live with this deception that if I share with my parents this difficulty, Satan has made them believe 
that you're going to be kicked out of the house. I can't tell you both the number of times that a student has said, if I tell my mom or dad this, th- they'll kick me out of the house. And I'm like, do they really think they'll kick him out of the house? Yeah, have they said that to Or you? they've said, I was wow. so afraid to tell you this because I thought you would never let me come to church again. And I'm like, what have I ever done to communicate to you that if you shared this, that's all the deception. I don't mm-hmm. think that we're doing things that communicate that. Now, some parents do. Some parents need to be coached how to react when your child comes and says, I've done this. And it's immediately, all right, that's it. I'm taking your keys. All right, that's it. I'm taking away this. All right, that's it. I'm, do- you know, here's the penalty. Here's the punishment. And what I tell students or tell parents is let your child share what they want to share. And then you have a, an approach of, okay, how how can I encourage you and stand by you as we get out of this? There may be consequences. There may be a penalty. There may, in fact, be punishment. There's going to be disappointment. But how can we stand alongside you as you go through this? And then once that happens one or two times and your kid realizes they're not going to hate me, they, mm-hmm. they actually know how to help me out of this, then slowly you know, you, you develop that kind of relationship where they feel a sense of, Mom and dad, I, I need I need to tell you something. Yeah, that's it's trust. Basically, yeah. you've built trust from the time they're five, like you said, by saying those words. Which In times I, of non-conflict. Uh, yeah, they, they're concrete. They need to hear that. Life. Yeah. And then um, just your reaction. You watch you watch your tone, you watch your tongue and you don't like immediately. I can just see it happening. My kid comes to tell me something. And like you said, you know, you suppress that initial gasp. And you say, maybe tell me more. And then as they tell you more, boy, it's so tempting to slip into that lecture mode or, well, didn't you know this? Or haven't I told you? It's so tempting. The hardest thing about parenting, I think, from about mm, sixth grade on is to just hold your tongue. And and <laughs> you know, how does a parent do what, what God did for Jesus at, at his baptism? If Jesus Christ needed to hear, this is my child whom I love and in you I'm well pleased, if he had to hear it, then I know I've got to hear it. And I know every person who who doesn't have a loving relationship with their parents, they need to hear that. And so we have to, you know, youth ministry is about providing other voices, not just a mom or a dad. They can say, you're my child. I love you. And I'm, and I'm pleased by you. You know, the, the three fundamental questions of adolescence are, who am I? Where do I belong? And why do I matter? Everything a kid does is focus every relationship they have every accomplishment they seek is all trying to figure that out um and the way you become that kind of parent is i think early on is to to communicate that in in some words like you're my child i love you and i'm i'm pleased by you mm. yeah so good mm, i love that before we started recording you mentioned this interesting book that you have read um and just kind of the fallout from that for teens in terms of, of the, the pandemic and some interesting demographic work. The, the whole book is, is fascinating. It's very brief. It's a book called The Pandemic Population by uh, Dr. Tim Elmore, uh, E-L-M-O-R-E, Tim Elmore. He's written lots of books about parenting. He's spoken at a lot of conferences that I have been to. He, he does a lot of work with, you know, about the influence of social media and parenting and leadership. Um, he's got a lot of stuff published, really good. But this book came out during the pandemic. It, I mean, really quickly into the pandemic, he, he put this book out. And there was one specific part of it that I found to be fascinating. And I think as a historical um, observation, it's, it's, it's intriguing, but its implications are, are huge. Uh, so he went through a study of 
kids that were um, raised during the depression. And he said, I wanted to try to find a number of students, a number of people that were kids, teenagers during the depression. And I just wanted to see what are some things we learned about them. And I wanted to compare them to generation Z, our current generation, knowing that the pandemic is not quite the great depression, but he says, there are some similarities in what we're going through. And he said, I just wanted to see what do we notice uh, about those two groups? And he said, we noticed three negatives and six positive outcomes from their recollection of the great depression. So real quickly, he said the, the negative results were an increase in the suicide rate, a greater risk aversion and lower expectations. Simply stated, um, you know, during the depression, a lot of the economic depression triggered emotional depression, which then caused the, the suicide rate to go up. He said that that seems to make sense. Uh, risk aversion. Obviously, if you're in an economic downturn, you're not going to take some of the risks that normally you would normally take. That seems to also make sense because you're, you're going to have, uh, you know, fear of another time of scarcity or insecurity. And then third, he said these, these kids of the Depression entered adulthood with lower expectations. They were already minimalist just by design, and they, they realized, you know, things are probably not going to be better for us than they were for our parents. I mean, we, we grew up in a hard time. Things aren't going to get easier. So he said we, we saw those three things and th those exact same three things we see in Generation Z as a result of the pandemic. Uh, the suicide rate among people ages 10 to 24 increased 56% between 2007 and 2017 and went up even higher during the, uh, during the pandemic. Uh, he says, uh, I'm quoting from the book here, while the majority of suicides during the Great Depression were adults, today it's the youngest population who leads the trend. The prevalence of social media today, combined with 24-7 real-time reporting, where teens are exposed to every challenge faced by everyone in the world, heightens anxiety. That seems to make sense. So suicide rates are high. Yep. Also, risk aversion seems to mark young people uh, as well as they come out of the pandemic. For, for obvious reasons, and then their expectations of what's going to happen, my post-graduation life, life's going to be harder, there's going to be fewer prospects, fewer jobs. So he said those those things we all saw that were the same. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. So the, the negatives were all similar. So then he said, let's look at the positive uh, effects, and let's try to find out uh, about that population that was raised during the Great uh, Depression, and, and let's look and see uh, what came from them. He says there were a large number of positive effects, even virtues that continue to show up in our oldest population who were raised in the Great Depression. And so here's what he noticed. He said one um, was a, a greater sense of humility. They realized they were smaller pieces of a much larger puzzle, very little arrogance or cockiness uh, in this generation. They were grateful. They were appreciative of the people who played a part in their progress and in their lives, and they realized they didn't achieve their goals alone. They were good workers. The work ethic is a staple for this for that particular generation. Uh, kindness. They looked out for each other, and it was marked by acts of service. They were resilient. They learned to bounce back after hardship, and words like grit were normal and expected. And then they were resourceful. They had, they had to make much out of little, and they discovered how to make life work uh, on less. They said the Great Depression was difficult, but it wasn't devastating. So then he said, okay, so if we see the same exact negatives, surely we're going to see these same things because both of them are dealing with some sort of societal trauma, a depression or a pandemic. 
And he says, since we found common negative traits between the silent generation and Generation Z, wouldn't it be natural to assume that we would also find the similar positive traits? And he said, sadly, that's not the case. Because in former generations who experienced hardship, young people emerged afterward with a growth narrative inside of them. Now, just take a moment to explain this. You know, we, we, we've often talked about it, and Renee, you talked about it earlier. It's not the difficulty that you go through, but it's the story that you tell yourself about that difficulty. And if you don't know what story to tell yourself, the enemy is going to be very, very quick to fill that void and say, let me tell you what to think. You know, from the very first pages of Scripture, did God really say mm-hmm. he's trying to rewrite the fact that God's holding out on you? God can't be trusted. God doesn't know what he's up to. God is abandoned post. You're going to have to figure this out on your own. And so they, they, they noticed that the struggle for the depression kids, it made them better and not bitter. But it says we're not seeing that in Generation Z. And why is that? And he talks about this collective narrative. And he uses the word soundtrack, just like the soundtrack of a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have sound clips with me, but I do this with our teens often. If I played certain soundtracks, you would know who's about to show up. Oh, Superman's around the corner. Oh, here comes Indiana Jones. Yeah, Darth Vader is right around the corner. You all did that very well. Um, and so as parents, we, we're pretty good with that soundtrack, right? We know the Darth Vader thing pretty well. Uh, but we know the soundtrack lets you know who's about to show up or what's about to happen. Even if it's not a person, we know that something scary is about to happen when we hear the Halloween music, or we know that somebody's about to fall in love when you hear the Titanic theme. So you're like, the soundtrack provides uh, knowledge about what do we think about the story that we're watching right now in a movie. So in life, what is our what is our soundtrack? And he says our soundtrack is that collective narrative that a generation tells itself about the story that it's in. And he says, who are the authors of our soundtrack he specifically says the poets are the musicians those that write the songs you could argue entertainment as well sitcoms and movies right Mm -hmm. but he says specifically music and for for this generation music is all about they've got a playlist for every occasion you know if somebody broke up with me if i'm sad (laughs) if i'm mad at my parents if i'm frustrated with school there's music i listen to that will help provide a soundtrack for all those emotions that's right I think every generation has that. Well, clearly oh, they do because it happened in the Depression. And he absolutely. says, he says, look at the 60s and 70s. All of that music articulated the rebellious times in which they were written. The 80s and the 90s, you had Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, Marilyn Manson. All of those are giving lyrics uh, to a, a jaded and cynical generation. And so... Hey now, hey now. That was my generation. <laughs> so he says, let's look at today's Billboard Hot 100 songs. And what we're seeing is a, um, another turn towards sadness, negativity, and anxiety. He says, what are today's poets telling us? And why is this youth narrative trending negative? And he quotes uh, Alberto Acerbi, who's an anthropologist who wrote a book in 2019. So it's very recent. And it's called Cultural Evolution in the Digital Age, where Acerbi goes through and he looks at the lyrics from 150,000 songs, including the Billboard Hot 100 chart from 1965 to 2015. Okay. And so he says, a ton of data. Yeah. Ton of data. Okay. 150,000 songs. Song lyrics have become measurably more sad in the last 50 years. And he gives just a a little bit of uh, uh, examples why. 1965, 450 negative emotion words were used in popular music. In 2015, that number was above 700, a a growth of more than a third. In 1965, 1,750 positive emotion uh, words were used. Whereas in 2015, it was 1,150, a decline of about a third. 
He says the effect can be seen even when we look at single words. The usage of the word love, for example, was cut in half over the last 50 years, going from 400 to 200 of these 150,000 top 100 songs. The word hate, on the contrary, which until the 1990s was not even mentioned in any top 100 songs on the charts, is now used somewhere between 20 and 30 times a year uh, in, in song, or in 20 to 30 songs a year. Then he talks about the, the keys and the tonalities and the tempo and all of that. Mm -hmm. But he says, here is, here is what has changed. The, the deciding factor in this change as we've seen, is the narrative with which each generation engaged the challenges they faced. When the silent generation, the, those from the Depression, faced hardship, they were encouraged to be resilient, resourceful, and respectful, and their music reflected that. When Generation Z faced similar hardships, they were encouraged to be savvy, cynical, and stoic. This narrative is being written by uh, the, the poets of our generation, by the music. Now, it, it it's probably tempting to say, okay, well then just, you know, don't let kids listen to music. I, that's not the answer. But we do have to engage with our students. Whether you're watching an episode of Friends with your child or Seinfeld or uh, The Office or certainly a movie that has more adult themes, you know, you should be able to ask your child, okay, what is the, the narrative that that is saying about the world? Now, nobody wants to have these conversations. No, no, no parent wants so to have these conversations. So, This is gold, parents. But, but, to, like, le lean in for yes. this moment. But if you watched an episode of Friends and you were to ask your child, you know, let's watch this together. Um, that might stop them watching it Exactly. Altogether. But if they, say, if they start watching <laughs> the and they say, so what did that scene just, what, what is the message about sex from that particular scene? What is it saying about sex and the consequences of it? And when a teen really looks into that discernment, uh, the, you know, the, the discovery uh, and the, the discernment of what is the message, what does Scripture say about that? You know, what, what have we learned that Scripture says about that view? And, and do those go together? Do they conflict? It's not that we can totally absolve ourselves from all media. You could do this with the, the latest Batman or Spider-Man movie. Mm -hmm. You know, what claims are being made about the world in, in this what claims are being made about people? What claims are, are made about God? You know, Goodness. It's, it's why shows like, like Lost bad? were so appealing to me because there were spiritual themes, even though it wasn't written from a Christian perspective, it was asking questions that, that really engage dialogue. The problem is most of us just aren't sitting around our tables uh, talking about these shows and we're not sitting around in the couch in the family room watching them together anymore. We're watching them on our devices, on our, on our laptops, in our room, on Netflix. And uh, it can be really powerful to, to, to listen to a song, you know, get your teen's iPods and AirPods and, and listen to them and say, hey, um, let's just look at the lyrics to this. Now, I, I know that listeners of this podcast aren't going to be like, oh, yeah, that, that's going to work. That'll go. But I would say you should at least get the lyrics. Yes. Years ago, uh, I went and got the top 10 songs on the Billboard chart for that particular week. And I wanted to... To, you have to Clorox your ears after that? Well, <laughs> I, I told our teens, and this is totally true, that particular week, of the top 10 songs on the charts, seven of them, I could not put the lyrics onto the screen. Mm -hmm. Seven of them. Three of the top 10 songs, I couldn't even list the title of the song because of how offensive the, the language was or a word that was used. Then when I told the teens, let me read the top 10 songs, you tell me, could I put these lyrics up on the screen? Well, you know, 
there was a, a audible, nope, <laughs> don't put those. And, and then an audible, uh, yeah, you could put that. Oh, well, no, no, maybe you can't. Actually. And somebody goes, no, they couldn't unless you play the one on the radio, you know, the clean version. Right. And but we those, don't listen to the lyrics anyway. We no, just like right. it for the that's music. Right. right. There were right, seven right. songs that they couldn't. And I said, I don't know whether to be more disturbed by the fact that seven of the top ten songs I couldn't list on the screen, the lyrics, or that everybody in this room knew, knew, that. knew whether to tell mm-hmm. me. Whether we could or not, of course they did, and of course and I have. don't think they understand that it is providing a soundtrack and a, and a narrative. So that's a, a it's a, teaching them what to love. It is right. an entertainment industry would say it's a chicken or the egg thing. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, that's giving them the narrative, but the entertainment industry would say well, that's what they want anyway. So that's what we're giving them. Yeah, but I don't think that's true. No, I think that's a big and, fat lie. And I do, I agree with you. You can't um, just hide from it all. I think engagement is the thing to do, and you'll find parents probably, as I did when I started to do this, I had trouble kind of discerning what the narrative was, and you you just you get you build that muscle and you get better over time so don't freak out if you listen and you're like oh i'm not sure what that says about people or i'm not sure what that says about the world like yeah hey this is the time to gather your net right <laughs> start talking to your other parent friends about this and there's some other great podcasts out there that'll help you um develop some filters that'll help you make sense of that but it's so crucial because music it it's it's what we remember in the nursing home when we've lost when every other Alzheimer's. part of our mind. That's right. It like gets into our bodies. We're body, soul, and spirit, and mm-hmm. it gets into us. I know, and it's powerful. You know, so it's just like the story of the girl who wanted to be loved by her father. So this is the same sort of thing. You sit down and have those conversations over the TV or the lyrics or whatever with your child, and your child's going to roll their eyes and they're going to say, "Dad, Mom, come on, it's just a show," and they're going to push back but they're hearing it whether they think they are or not at least they're hearing another side to things so be persistent and keep having the conversations keep talking mm-hmm. and it's got to be a dialogue not let me tell you what that show is saying it's you tell me what you think that it's saying mm-hmm. let's talk about this rather than let me tell you what you should think about this or let me tell you um why you shouldn't or shouldn't watch this but it, it needs to be a, a dialogue where a teen can take ownership and then they hear themselves trying to explain it and realize, I can't explain it. Um, I, you may have some more questions on that. I want to turn the corner for just a second, if I may. Yeah, I just can I pause and just say I'm feeling um, vindicated about my Megan Trainer comment in a previous podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just said I couldn't believe I admitted to the world that Emma and I listened to Megan Trainer, But that's so true. There's so much... Um, what she's saying about men is actually what the Bible says about Jesus mm. so many times. It's like she's elevated this um, human love between right. a man and a woman to what only Jesus can provide. And right. if you just pulled some of the sex references out and slipped Jesus's name in, mm-hmm. you'd actually have a, hey, you'd have a better contemporary Christian song Pretty than a whole lot of stuff that's on the radio right now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, so powerful. Okay, let's turn the corner. What, do you, what you got for us? Well, so I work with mainly 13 to 18-year-olds. But when our students graduate, they go to college or they go to an occupation or they take a, a, a gap year or they go into mission work, whatever they do, they, they, leave, they leave our circus. And you're never sure, you know, the net, 
like this net can't go with you now. Right. You've got to find another net. And I don't know that we're the, we're, we're the, the best about helping students identify this is what a net looks like because they might not have even recognized that we had a net for them. They just lived it. So how do we help them find the net? So 18 to 29-year-olds, it's kind of like a, a black hole in a lot of churches. Uh, it's 17% of the U.S. population eight, is 18 to 29, but only 10% of U.S. church attendees are, are 18 to 29-year-olds. And there's this deadly uh, equation that, um, so let me put this math equation together for you. I'm not good at math, but I can at least, when, when there's words involved, I can. You take young people who are unprepared to defend their faith. You add to that a hostile university environment, even at a Christian school, possibly. You add to that a lack of an, al- an alternate worldview to pursue or fulfill their desires that's being presented to them. You add to that increased distractions. So you have those four things put together equals that, you know, 80% of these kids will turn and walk away after graduation. And, and that those numbers are, are backed up with a variety of, of pretty rigorous studies. So we want to ask the question, you know, why do they leave? And there's lots of places to go and, and, and answer those questions. There was a study, I guess, that Lifeway did. It was probably five or six years ago where they asked the question, why is it? Why do two stay? Why do two out of 10 stay? Why do 20% stay? Uh, I have often argued that in youth ministry, we've drawn the wrong finish line. You know, we say you graduate when you're, when you're a senior, you're 18, that's the finish line for youth ministry, rather not, not parenting, but for youth ministry, the finish line feels like senior Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Parenting never stops. Yeah. And and you're like, (laughs) okay, I tell youth workers, Hey, the finish line for youth ministry is not when they graduate. It at least has to be extended to that first year of college because we've got to make sure that they know how to identify a net and what a net looks like. And so you all are probably familiar and remember because we, we did this with your own students where we asked them when they graduate to pick an 80-day mentor who's going to follow them through their first 80 days of college, typically their first semester. And that person is going to pray for them by name every day. They're going to visit them at least once if they can. They're going to contact them every week somehow. They're going to visit with them when they come back home uh, for the for the semester break at Christmas or Thanksgiving, and they're going to stay with them until they find a community of believers in Jesus to follow at school, you know, a Bible study, hopefully a church, but some sort of um, Christ-following group. That's what those mentors are supposed to do. And if I could say one thing to what parents need to hear, uh, this this would be probably one of the things at the top of the list. Um so Lifeway asks this question, why is it that 2% or 20% stay? Why do two out of 10 stay? And here's the three things they found out. Again, this is not just their ideas from talking to kids. It's backed up with good social scientific research. Uh, number three, and this is an order of importance, by the way. Number three, they attended a church where the Bible was taught in a relevant way. And so that's, that's important. We need to make sure that's, a, that's an, an important uh, factor. The second one, they had three or four adults walking in their life other than a parent. That's the net. That's that's another net that we talked about. Three to four other adults. And then number one, which this shouldn't be surprising, they had a mom and a dad or a mom or a dad. They were quick to say it doesn't have to be both who were passionate about their own relationship with Jesus. And then he, uh, they quote this stat. One percent of those raised by parents who attached little importance to religion were religious in their 20s. One percent. Well, sure. One percent. Now, that's not surprising. So what about those whose parents talked about faith at home, attached importance to faith in their decisions and were active in a local congregation? That number jumps to 82 percent. 
just a, you wow. know, again, yeah. not to be surprising. That's... But then here's a quote from Christian Smith. You may be familiar or your listeners may know him from he, he, Christian Smith has worked with the National Study of Youth and Religion and has written several books on this topic. But here are a couple of quotes that I think are important. He says, no other conceivable causal influence comes anywhere close to matching the influence of parents on the religious faith of young people. Parents just dominate. And this is the scary part. The spiritual faith of parents sets a kind of glass ceiling of religious commitment above which their children rarely rise. If you said what's something a parent needs to hear, I would say you need to know that your involvement and the level to which you are committed to being a, a cross-carrying disciple of Jesus, wherever that ceiling is, your children are not likely to rise above it. Now, all of in ministry, I've seen plenty who have, mm -hmm. and those kids are heroes. They're heroes to mm -hmm. me because I, it, it seems virtually impossible. Uh, he says 94% of those who identified as mature Christian adults reported that they had parents who made sure that they were surrounded and connected to three or four other adults, a phrase that, that, that he calls uh, long lines of convergent faithfulness. That's a very academic way of just saying <laughs> you have a, uh, you, you've got a net. You've got a net. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I've said for years that youth ministry programs are only thinly veiled excuses for teens to hang out with other adults. Uh, it's the best definition of youth ministry that I've come up with, and it it, it, it it's really true. I'm going to want to get, you know, um, uh, Ben and, and Savannah or Emma in Houston. I, I'm going to want to get them, whether on a mission trip or to the bowling alley, as long as there are five other adults that are there that know their names. And whether they're doing mission work or eating pizza together, as long as there are other adults around. We used to say in ministry, you should have one adult for every five kids. That was, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the rule of thumb. But now people say it's really five, five adults for every one kid. Now, not on a trip necessarily, but Ben, your son, Ben, should be able to name, and I bet he could, five adults besides mom and dad mm -hmm. and, and really besides youth minister, mm -hmm. five adults that poured into him when he was in the youth group that knew his name, that knew if he wasn't there, that knew what he was good at and that checked in with him. And, and that really is the goal. Uh, so back to the, to the trapeze analogy, when a parent says, what can we do? Then I say, let's start right there. Let's start identifying five other adults. We can get to come around your student because that's the number two reason that they're mm -hmm. going to stay connected to faith is if yeah. they have three or four other adults that are going to uh, that, are, that are going to be around them. They surveyed 500 high schoolers and they asked them, "What do you wish that you had more of in youth ministry?" The number one response: "I wish I had more time for deep conversation with someone who knew my name and would check in on me." 500 students, and that was by far the family feud uh, number number one answer. Interesting. That's so interesting. And I think we just talked about hospitality and how important small groups are and doing life together, raising your kids together, that kind of thing. And that those are those adults. It those totally are the ones is. who can step in and say, totally look, you're, you're out of line or, hey, let me just take you to coffee. Um, tell me more about what's going on in your life. Absolutely. That's not exactly your parent, but they're, they're close to your parent. Um, that is so, so key. If you're not in a small group or you're not in a community yet. Um, I mean, you just heard that statistic about like the parents are the glass ceiling. Um, bring in 
as many other folks as you can. We used to put in my kids' cell phones. Like, if you don't want to call me, here's three other people you can call um, in our small group yeah, or yeah. whatever from church. You don't call me. Call them. And as a to. parent, you have to be okay that that person's not going to then call you and, and give you all the scoop. That's right. You have to tell your teen, you know, what you tell them. Yeah. Is, is what you tell them. And mm-hmm. that's why as a parent, you, you have to make sure this is, trust th- this, is somebody, <laughs> this is somebody that I trust to, to give them wisdom that they would say what I would want to say, or they might even say things that are wiser than what I would say. Right. Cause they're not mm-hmm. so emotionally invested necessarily mm-hmm. as you are. Very true. Yeah. And I, um, I'm just remembering, I think we've mentioned this in another podcast. We made up excuses for our kids to hang around people older than them yeah. we even paid for it sometimes lessons i've got air quotes around mm-hmm. that moms if you're listening uh you know just an excuse hey you want to learn chess let's pay this 25 year old person we re- we admire and that you really like to come and teach you chess lessons that was just a yeah. thinly veiled excuse for him to be in that person's orbit mm-hmm. an hour every week and so certainly yeah parenting is always we say this all the time bonnie the best excuse for your own personal growth and development. Mm-hmm. So right. if you're if you're thinking, oh no, my spiritual life's not where it needs to be, or even just my character, if you don't even know Jesus yet, my character's not where it needs to be. Well, that's great because now you have an opportunity. You've got some. You've got people counting on you, and you've right. got an opportunity to do better. And, I just and you know, to honestly, I think it makes more of an impression on your child to see you. If they can see a difference in you and you making that change, yeah. um, I, and especially older kids will notice that about yeah. you. Like they've got radar and they'll notice, hey, you know, my mom didn't used to pray all that much in the mornings or, you know, my dad and my mm-hmm. mom never prayed together before. And now they are like, what was that all about? And you can have a conversation about it or they can see the change in you. Um, that's a huge impact. So it don't, huge don't impact. let the fact that you've never done it before or maybe you're not that great at it stop you from doing something now. Absolutely. It's, it really is a joy to watch as a kid, to watch your parents change and grow. Like my parents during the pandemic had to like make some life changes and grow and change in terms of like their own community, just the two of them, because they couldn't be around other people. And Mm -hmm. I saw them um, start to do like devotions together in the morning by the fireplace. Well, I didn't see them because I wasn't there, but they told me I'd call and they'd be like, Oh, we're just finishing up our Bible reading and prayer time together. I'm like, what? And that's sweet. That's so beautiful because they just knew like, okay, well, this is a different situation in life that, um, is requiring us because we're cut off from other people to really, um, invest and make a difference. And I'm like, they are, they are 77. They could easily (laughs) just say, you know what? We're done here. We've, we've grown enough. No, they're yeah. still like willing to just grow and change. And and they're a part of that generation that says this is how you overcome a difficulty. Mm-hmm. That's so Be- true. Because they're not listening to the world telling them when the world gets difficult, it's somebody's fault. Somebody has to be at blame. It gives you a license to just sit down and say, I'm not doing anything until life gets better. Because, you know, that's the narrative that so many of our students are hearing. And, and I, I don't want to be hard on, on young people because I see so many that are rising above that uh, yeah. and saying, I'm going to, to rewrite the soundtrack. We walked our students through an extensive study of the book of Habakkuk. It's only 56 verses long, but Habakkuk complains about the way things are and God tells him, I'm up to something that I can't really explain to you. Habakkuk complains again and God tells him, this is why I'm doing this. And then Habakkuk in chapter three says, you know what? Um, I think I think I'm going to, even though everything I see around me is falling apart, 
yet I will still trust in the Lord and I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on those who are who are invading us. And I told our students who had really never really studied the book of Habakkuk. Yeah, because it's not it's like, the most common Bible study. It's like right. you have to learn to, to write your own Habakkuk 3. And we said, even though you guys fill in the blank, yet I will still trust in the Lord. And I, I can't tell the both of you how beautiful and how heartfelt the students wrote on these cards, the things that were taken away from them, the things that they missed out on, the things that they didn't understand, the things about God that they just couldn't come to grips with, even though, and they filled in so many things, you know, yet I will still trust in the Lord. Uh, and as parents, it, we have to, it's, it's a daily process of, of writing, rewriting the soundtrack uh, of our, our own uh, Habakkuk 3, if you will. For sure. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Okay, so let's do, we want to do a speed round. It has to be a speed round. We've had yeah. so many good conversations. <laughs> but you have your top 10 things that you say to teens. And one of your teens, you were telling us, collected these over the course of sitting under your teaching year after year and gave it to you his senior year when he was graduating. That's right. And it's actually 31 things, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the list <laughs> was, I would often say, hey guys, here's one of the top 10 things. I don't care if you get tired of hearing me say. I probably should come up with a more concise title, but that's it. Uh, and if I ever ended up writing a book one day, it would probably be called the top 10 things. I don't care if teens get tired of hearing me say. And he wrote it down and he'd write them down. And if he heard me say it more than three or four times, he'd write it down. And when he graduated, he said, here's your top 10 list. By the way, it's 31. <laughs> I love it. I but love it, it. It was one of the greatest gifts I'd ever received because they, they were all there in one place. Well, and he let us look at this before we started our interview. Yeah. And they're so good. And I just can't close without doing doing them, at least some of them. Okay, so we're and not going to, like, explain. We're just going to kind of go down, right? Yeah, I mean, he can explain a little bit. All right. But don't explain a lot, Skid, because you can do a lot of explaining. I can do it. I can do it quick. <laughs> so, You'll be amazed at how quick. I'm just, I'll, I'll go through this list, and then uh, if there's something that, that people want to know more about, we can talk about it later. Yeah. Great. Yeah, awesome. and these are in no particular order, you said, right? They're no, not weighted. No okay. Um, okay, I tell students, sin's not just about messing up as much as it is about missing out. I tell students the two strongest words in the English language are the words me too. And that was said long before the, the, the current culture where I guess it may mean something else, but those are two of the most important words in the English language. Uh, with sin, you'll, you'll almost always get what you want, but you will not want what you get. Hmm. We tell our students two rules on every trip. Remember who and whose you are and act in such a way that it would be best if everyone acted like you. And those are good, not just for youth uh, trips, but also for life. For everyone life. in general. Everyone, yeah. I tell beautiful. students the two most important things about you. The second most important thing about you is what you think about God. And they say, wait, isn't that the most important thing? No, the most important thing about you is what you think God thinks about when God thinks about you. Um, my grandfather used to say, a Bible that is falling apart is usually a sign of someone who isn't. I, um, I remind students that your direction will determine your destination. Uh, this is one that some teens kind of roll their eyes at. Uh, everything happens for a reason uh, is a load of crap. Can I say crap on a podcast? Oh, yes. you can, you podcast? Can. I know the two of you, and I think I can say crap. <laughs> but God can bring reason even from the unreasonable. Uh, uh, here's another one on the list. God does not say to you when you sin, that's not what you were supposed to do. But rather, he comes down and dwells among us and says, that's not who you are. Oh, um, that's so good. Yeah, I tell the teens that the true sign of a prophet or a mature believer is that your heart breaks at the things that break uh, the heart of God. 
Mm. Um, I tell them, you show me a passage where you say God is preventing you from having fun, and I will show you in that very same passage where he's trying to protect you from something or to provide you with something. A student comes to me with a problem, and I tell them, you don't have a problem that needs a solution. What you have is a direction that needs a new destination. Some of the wisest advice I was ever given was to find someone who is running spiritually faster than you and spend all your time keeping up. I remind students that they're a a sycamore tree and not a savior. From the story of Zacchaeus, their job is to lift other people above the distractions of the crowd that they might see the approaching savior more clearly. You're not a savior. You are just a sycamore tree. Then uh, from the life of Jonah, I tell students there's only two ways you're ever going to respond to God. You either listen the first time or you run and you wait for God to get your attention. It happens to everybody. (laughs) Sin is uh, nothing more than being momentarily deceived that there is life outside, uh, outside of God. I tell students the hardest thing you'll ever try to do is to be somebody that you were not meant to be. Also remind them there's a God shaped hole in all of us that only he can fill. Anything else that tries to fill it will leak. Uh, We remind kids, treat the person that you date in such a way that you would not be embarrassed to introduce them to your mate. Uh, That's a big one. And a couple more. We want every student to find their three. You need a Paul in your life, someone who is older than you who walks ahead of you spiritually. You need a Barnabas, somebody that's your age who is walking toward God with you. And then you need a Timothy, somebody that's younger than you who walks behind you that you pour into. Most teens have a Barnabas. A lot of them have a Paul, but very few teens know what it means to, uh, to have uh, a Timothy. Hmm. And then uh, I guess the, the final two, there's some others on the list, but the final two, the number one thing that our students hear me say more than anything else, and if you called your four kids, I'm sure they could tell you right now. I know. I think we can say it. <laughs> we tell them that you, you are, are who, who you, you hang, hang around. around. <laughs> if you show me your friends, I will show you your future. And then I end uh, every talk that I give, almost every class that I give, and often uh, most conversations, uh, as I would probably end my time with you all, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, by the way, um, by just a a simple benediction that was a Jewish proverb, not from Scripture, but the proverb that says, it is not within our power to place the divine teachings of God directly into the heart of another person. All we can do is lay them on the surface of the heart so that when the heart breaks, which it will, these will be the things that will be the first to fall in. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I remind our students, if that happens with any of, um, of, of my teaching or our messages, then to God and God alone be all of the glory for that. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was a wonderful list. All of them. I'm just like, yes, amen. I Good know. For that one. I'm like, bumper sticker. Wait, there's a bumper sticker. <laughs> That's I need an old-fashioned cross-stitch sampler of every <laughs> single one of those for sure. <laughs> Now, I want you to cross-stitch these for me all on one big list. <laughs> okay. That'll be, a, that'll be the second greatest gift I've ever been given. All right. Is my, and, I love it. And you may say some words other than crap. <laughs> oh, no, no. That's going on there, front and center. Oh, no. Oh, this so is awesome. Good. Well, thanks so much yeah, for spending you for your time here. with us. This was golden. Mm-hmm. I, I hope so many people can listen to this and, and just get one thing out of it. Be encouraged. Yeah. Take, it's awesome. Take your nugget of wisdom. So good. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This is Emma. And Dottie Lou, grandchild of <coughs> Renee. The resources mentioned on this podcast will be on the website, justaskyourmom.com. You can follow the podcast on Facebook at Just Ask Your Mom or Instagram at Just Ask Your Mom Podcast. Leave a review, rate us, better yet, subscribe so that you'll get a new episode each Monday. Send us your topic suggestions. You can email justaskyourmompodcast at gmail.com.
Oh. Dot com. We'll see you next time on Just Ask Your Mom.